Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is an industry update on M&A, Meet the Investors, why it's important for all advisors to know who they are, with special guest, Lewis Diamond. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, and on advisorhub.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page of our website. And if you find the content in this series to be useful and know others who could benefit from it, feel free to share it widely. As I've said many times throughout this series, one of the biggest changes in wealth management is the fact that financial advisors, no matter where they practice, now view their business as a business. Even the most captive advisor, which is usually a bank broker, recognizes that he is building or has built an asset with real enterprise value and that the decision around how and when to monetize it is worthy of serious consideration. So on today's episode, I want to talk with you about the investors in the space. Who are they? Why would an advisor choose to sell all or a minority portion of his business? How are deals structured? And much more. Whether you're a wirehouse advisor or already independent, the inevitable challenges you will face at some point in your career are the same. Accelerating growth, creating scale, and monetizing your life's work. The unique challenge, though, for wirehouse advisors or advisors who are employees of traditional firms who are considering independence is wondering about how to access transition capital and de-risk their move, all topics we will cover today. In one of the frothiest M&A markets we've seen, this is a hot topic. Even amidst a pandemic and a roller coaster stock market, there's a continued frenzy of M&A activity across the industry. And there's no shortage of buyers, buyers that fall into distinct categories and can be sorted based upon the amount of control that a seller would have to cede to them. There's a lot to discuss, so I've asked Lewis Diamond to join me to help give more color to the subject. While there's a lot of common ground between business owners, whether they be captive or independent, what's unique amongst them is what each are attempting to solve for. Many will acknowledge the imperfections in their status quo, but will still opt to stay the course because it's the path of least resistance. But still others, many other business owners, will choose to sell to an investor. And those investors range from private equity firms to family offices to asset managers who might be looking for a foothold in wealth management, but even to an advisor's own clients or other RIA firms. So let's dig in a bit. Lewis, thank you so much for joining me today. Of course. Thanks for having me again. You bet. So, Lewis, who are the investors? Who are they? And I guess what are the different categories they fall into? Yeah, absolutely. So, you mentioned some examples of who these investors might be in your in your opening. They could be a private equity firm or a family office or an asset manager. 
But to me, they really fall into two different categories. One is the minority and non-control investor. These are groups that will invest directly into a firm, um, allow that firm to retain their brand and really everything that they're doing and own a minority, uh, so less than 50% um, of that firm's equity or cash flow. This is contrasted with a majority control investor who will still enable a firm to keep their brand and, and their, their mode of doing things, but they'll own more than 50% of the equity. The big difference, of course, is control. If it's truly a minority buyer, then they have far less rights and, um, and control over how this business might be able to operate in the future versus a control investor can decide when to sell the business and will absolutely be able to have other controls over management and the employees, et cetera. So for context, can you give us examples by way of names of some of these investors? Certainly. On the minority side, some of the more popular names we hear today just in reading industry news clippings is Emigrant Partners, which is the investment arm of New York Private Bank and Trust, the family office for Howard Milstein. Uh, another example might be Merchant. Both of these groups were prior guests on our podcast series. And with both of them, the metrics they use for buying into a business are a little bit different. But the concept is they'll buy, let's say, around 15 to 20% of a firm's business. And in exchange for not just the cash that comes with the deal, the firm will also receive their strategic guidance, whether it's help with recruitment or acquisition, it's help with monetizing out a prior owner, and also just having some other smart people on board to help drive the business forward. Those would be two examples of minority investors. On the majority side, it might be more of like a private equity firm. So a company like KKR or Bain, firms like that that will come in and will own the majority of a firm. Focus Financial Partners is, I would say, the initial leader as an investor in the space. They were really one of the first, and now they're a publicly traded corporation. They sometimes can act as a minority investor, but sometimes they'll take more of a control position as they'll own more than 50% of a business. And where does Hightower fall into all of this? I mean, I know Hightower's morphed and changed their stripes a couple of times since they were first born, but what category of investor do they fall into today? Yeah, Hightower is a bit unique in that regard. Um, and you're definitely right. They changed from recruiting wirehouse advisors as W-2s. Then they became more of a platform for advisors that wanted to be independent, but with some support. But today they're really just acquirers of, of independent businesses. So with Hightower, an advisor joins their RIA. So they shut down their RIA and join Hightower's. So in exchange for that, Hightower does their compliance and technology and operations, but still lets them, in many cases, keep their brand. The financial arrangement between Hightower and a firm is either Hightower taking a minority position that might grow to more of a majority position over time, or depending upon what the advisor is looking to solve for, Hightower may come in owning more than 50% of the business out of the gate. So they're kind of in between because with some of these minority investors, they enable the RIA to just to stay truly independent, to keep their ADV and to not join someone else's RIA. But in the case of Hightower, while they're not trying to control someone's investment process or brand or really their way of doing things, 
the advisor or the firm does join their RIA. So it's a little bit different as far as control and also what the firm receiving the investment gets in return. So Hightower is particularly hot right now. I mean, I think we just read as I was prepping for this episode, they just did another major deal and it was one in a series of deals they've done. What is it about their unique construct that seems to be so appealing and who is it appealing to? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think there's a lot of advisors and and firm owners today who are looking to either monetize their equity before retirement and they haven't necessarily solved for their succession plan internally, either because they don't have the right people within their firm or as a lot of these businesses get bigger and multiples have really improved, it just becomes prohibitively expensive for a next generation advisor to have the capital and also the risk appetite to buy out an owner. So they definitely help those, say, first generation owners be able to monetize out a portion of their business. There's some buyers in this industry who can absolutely help someone solve for succession planning, but they're going to take full control. It's folding into their brand, their planning process, their technology, their everything. And unless you're a really good fit for that exact culture, the business kind of gets lost in the shuffle. What Hightower does differently, similar to Focus and others, is that they'll still let the business kind of keep its unique DNA. So under the Hightower umbrella, you have businesses that are institutional consultants. You have firms that focus on the ultra high net worth, firms that focus more on the mass affluent. You have some groups that are portfolio managers. Others are allocating to SMAs. So what's pretty unique about them is they allow for an advisor to benefit from scale, from their hundreds of billions worth of assets, their technology, and all of their people, but still let that business really operate as is while now having a strategic partner in the business to help it grow and to help it do the things that makes it special. Okay. So that actually brings me to my next question. You talk about now they've got a strategic partner and obviously a capital partner. What are the kinds of things that these sellers are looking to solve for that make them turn toward an investor of any kind? Yeah, that's a great question. Succession planning tends to be one of the biggest reasons. And if it's not number one, it's definitely part of the reason why someone might look for an investor. There are still, though, plenty of advisors or firms who might tap an investor because they're looking to really accelerate their growth. And so many firms and advisors would love to recruit and acquire, but it's ridiculously competitive, as you know. So oftentimes it takes having a capital provider and someone just with the who can, who can generate M&A opportunities, help to structure deals to do valuations to turbocharge a firm's growth. So there's still plenty of groups who maybe succession planning isn't on the horizon for 20 plus years, but they've really hit hit a ceiling on their own growth and now are looking to turn to more inorganic means. And they're looking for someone to, to, to really be in the driver's seat with them, to have a vested interest in their success and their growth. I would say those are probably the, the two biggest reasons, but other reasons might be just to de-risk the business. A lot of Groups have the majority of their net worths tied up within their business. And until they monetize it, it's illiquid. It's an illiquid asset on their balance sheet. So while multiples are high and deal structures are pretty friendly, 
Some groups just want to take some cash off the table to diversify their risk. And then the, the last reason I'll give is probably only germane if it's a advisor who's looking to leave a captive environment. But there's definitely folks who would love to be independent, but because of either unvested deferred comp that they're leaving behind, the need to buy out a prior partner, or just because they want money to make a move, they might look to sell a portion of their business to a minority investor in order to finance their transition to independence. So a couple questions about that. One is, how is this conversation relevant for an advisor the, at a traditional brokerage firm? Yeah, so it's, it's relevant for two reasons. One is, like I said a little bit earlier, there are some advisors that would look to tap a minority investor to finance their exit from a firm. For a deferred comp, maybe they owe back some money on a recruitment deal. Maybe they have a partner that is considering their firm's retirement program. So they're looking to recreate their own version in the independent space, but they need capital for, for a down payment. That's probably the biggest reason that's relevant. But the second is, as advisors continue to look at their business as a business and think through, how am I going to best grow and monetize this thing in the future? They're certainly weighing, do I monetize my business today by taking a recruitment deal from another major firm? Or do I kind of delay that gratification and look to monetize my business closer to retirement or at some point in the future? So for advisors that are at a wirehouse or at a major bank, it's very important to know who the potential buyers are for a business because ultimately the business decision that they're making is do I monetize now and take some chips off the table today or do I instead opt for independence to opt for more freedom but ultimately have a path to monetize my business all or in part in the future, either because I want to retire or because I want to take some chips off the table. Yeah, and I think that that's actually spot on because every top advisor that is considering independence recognizes, even if they're fiercely entrepreneurial and committed to going independent, they recognize the opportunity cost of what they're giving up. And that opportunity cost is the opportunity to take some significant chips off the table in the short term. If they're going to do that, then what they want to know most is who are the buyers, who eventually will be the buyers, what guarantee do I have that those buyers will still be interested seven or 10 years from now if I'm first building my firm now, and what kind of deals are they paying? So I agree with you 100%. And we'll come back to that. I'm going to ask you more about in terms of how deals are structured in a minute. But what I'd like to ask you is, you mentioned that one of the motivations or one of the reasons why this conversation is relevant to a wirehouse advisor is if an advisor is committed to going independent and wants to sell to an investor out of the gate as a way of capitalizing the transaction, then bringing in an investor could make sense. But what is the prevailing thinking, or is it a good idea in your opinion for an advisor leaving the traditional space to sell equity out of the gate as he launches his independent firm? Yeah, that's a really good question. And for most groups that are choosing to go independent, it's something that they grapple with. Because when you're transitioning, period, there's risk. And who wouldn't want to get a big check for making a move? The big thing is deciding what comes with taking a check. Um, and in the case of going independent, oftentimes, or really always, an advisor is choosing to bet on themselves, to bet on the growth, to bet on their freedom and extra control 
versus taking some chips off the table and de-risking a bit by taking a deal? So it's a very fair question. There are a number of, of firms that would love to invest in a breakaway team, especially one of quality, because, I mean, who wouldn't? These, these advisors typically grow quickly. Once they have the shackles off, they tend to grow even faster than they once did. They're annuitized businesses. But the big question for a wirehouse advisor or someone who's going to be independent for the first time is, am I selling myself short or am I selling too much of my, of my upside? A business that is in transition is going to be worth less than it would be once it's steady state. So with certainty, an advisor who opts to sell equity out of the gate is likely selling their business either at somewhat of a discount or is going to get not as strong of a deal structure. It's going to be more of a shared risk structure rather than getting more money up front than someone who's already independent. We also see that a lot of groups that are going independent for the first time they're doing it because they're maybe they're young and have a very long runway or because they know they have many, many years left of growth. So it may make sense for them to either take on a debt solution, because oftentimes debt is a cheaper form of financing than selling equity, or they'll just self-finance a move. On the flip side, though, it might be a good idea for someone leaving a captive environment to sell equity. It's the only way for them to attain their independence. So there's groups that have a, for instance, a retiring partner who is looking for a very significant amount of money to make them whole on the retirement deal they would have gotten by staying put. So if an advisor now has a choice between signing on to his firm's or her firm's retiring advisor program and being locked up for five to seven years, or going to a similar type firm and signing a nine or 10 year recruitment deal versus selling a portion of equity, but being able to go independent, that might be a trade they make. Even though they may want to hold on to their equity, they're deciding to really buy their independence sooner than if they opted for their firm's retiring advisor program, or they signed on to a forgivable note package from another firm. Yeah, makes good sense. So let me pivot for a second. In this incredibly frothy or hot M&A market, we're seeing more minority investors coming to the table. I mean, it's not a novel concept. Focus Financial was an early minority investor and private equity has long been interested in the space. So why has the trend accelerated so much now? So you're definitely right. The trend of private equity and minority investors flooding the market has definitely accelerated. The big reason is that wealth management businesses or RIAs are really good investments for a private equity firm or for an investor. They're fee-based, which means they're annuitized. There's predictable streams of revenue. They're incredibly scalable. They're capital light. And there's also the trends of consolidation. So a lot of minority investors enter the space with the idea of staking a, a platform or a firm that is then going to go out and roll up smaller firms or recruit advisors to join its ranks. That tends to be the reason why private equity investors love wealth management. And as I think other industries face challenges, even throughout the, the COVID crisis, we saw plenty of M&A activity with private equity firms and other investors. It's proven out that investing in wealth management makes a ton of sense. So I think it's it's those things. There's just the underlying dynamics of the business that make it attractive. 
then also just some of the demographic trends of advisors looking for succession plans and the, the trend toward consolidation and the need for scale. And who are the right fit for these minority investors? So who are the minority investors most interested in and what kind of firms are most interested in minority investors? Yeah. So, I mean, at the at the smaller end, there might be some firms that would be interested in, say, a sub $300 million AUM RIA. But for the most part, um, sophisticated investors are looking to stake larger firms. They want firms that have a demonstrated track record of organic growth, that have a differentiated process, have a pretty unique value proposition, because in order for these investments to make sense, they really need to see the path to growth. And it really only makes sense from a give and take standpoint if the combined entity, so the the firm who's doing the selling and also the investor, that one plus one equals three or four. And that with this extra capital or with this extra guidance, this business is really going to take off. So I would say investors look for somewhat larger businesses. Certainly blue chip private equity firms are looking for significantly larger firms in the couple of billion of AUM. They want firms that are profitable as well. And you need firms that are looking for capital for the right reasons. While there might be some outstanding firms who need money to buy out a partner, if they're just going to use the money and then right off into the sunset, that's probably not a very good investment. So the ideal partners for these types of deals are firms that have a capital need, either for succession or to fund M&A, but also have broader growth plans. Either they have a really unique way of growing organically through digital marketing or through radio, and they can use this capital to invest in their organic growth or they can leverage the investor's expertise in acquisitions or or recruitment um, in order to grow. And you mentioned that these minority investors contrast to full control investors. So what's the difference in terms of the profile of the seller? Yeah, it's a good question. So with the minority ones, as the the name states, they're only taking a, a sliver of the company. They tend to be passive stakes in that they don't really have much say over how a firm does its investments or who the firm hires or what the brand is or what markets they're in. They probably have some veto power over doing an M&A deal or hiring a family member, for instance. But if you contrast this with a full control investor, which might be a private equity firm, private equity investors tend to have a three, five, or seven-year time horizon before they're required to monetize their stake in that company because that's what their private equity fund mandates in order to return liquidity to their investors. So if it's a full control investor, that investor can ultimately say in a year or three years, we found a good buyer for this business. Now's the time to sell it again. So that's one example of what a full control investor might be able to do because they have more voting rights than the initial management team. So I would say there are some businesses that a control investor is the only option, either because the number is so big that you really need to attract a blue chip private equity firm who's really only looking for a majority investment, um, or it might be a firm that is going through a management change and they actually want someone to take full control so that they have even deeper strategic leadership. So it's really, there's no right or wrong way. I would say typically advisors want to retain more control. 
They want to know that they can sell the business to who they want to in the future and that they can really steer the ship the way that they the way that they want to. But those types of structures aren't always an option. And why would an advisor choose not to sell to one of these investors, minority or otherwise? I guess, what's the downside to doing so? Yes. Yeah, so the downside is these types of investors, they don't necessarily solve for many of the issues that businesses are facing these days. They don't necessarily help a business gain scale. They don't take a lot of the day-to-day work off of a business's plate. So the investors, they're not taking over compliance. They're not taking over technology. So if it's a business that's really bogged down in the minutiae of running the business or is just struggling with, with scale, they really need to get a lot bigger. These investors don't necessarily solve for that. Um, sure, they might be able to help with it in the future through growing through acquisitions, for instance. But day one, they're not really taking any of the day-to-day work off of a firm's plate. And it's because of this that we'll continue to see major companies like CapTrust and Mariner and Mercer and the Mather Group continue to dominate M&A because a lot of firms just don't have either the, the team or the DNA of the business to be an attractive investment opportunity for a minority investor. And there's a million questions that we could go on and on and we won't do that, but how are deals typically structured? How does an investor think about structuring a deal? Is there some formula, some general formula? Is it unique to each deal? How does it work? Yeah, almost always the investors in these businesses, they'll buy a portion of equity, which really translates into buying a portion of that firm's free cash flow. The metric to which they value the business is almost always a multiple of EBITDA. And depending upon the size of the business, that number goes up or down. Typically, too, minority investors are going to pay a little bit less than a control investor because they don't have as much control over the business, if that makes sense. Lewis, thank you so much for your time and your insights. They are valuable and I'm grateful. Of course. It's always fun to do this show and get to share some highlights of what we're seeing in the industry. As we've heard from other recent guests on the show, including an upcoming episode with Peter Malouk, who's the president and CEO of the $55 plus billion firm Creative Planning, valuations are at an all-time high. So it's a good time to consider your options, making this conversation a relevant one. If you're a wirehouse advisor who's thinking about a leap to independence and looking to better understand valuations, be sure to visit this episode's page on our website for a link to one of our recent industry update episodes where Lewis identified several valuation scenarios to consider. We've also written a piece for Forbes that was originally printed in Forbes that covers the subject as well. Until next time, I thank you for listening. And I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. Lewis and I can both be reached at 908 
879-1002. My cell is 973-476-8578. Lewis's is 862-432-3543. And we can each be reached by email. I am mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. And Lewis is ldiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. A special thanks to advisorhub.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. 